Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. In this episode, the story of the port that feeds the world and what could happen now that it's shut. Odessa, a port in Ukraine, is usually a sight to behold. All yellow cranes and enormous container ships carrying grain to poor countries across the world. But since February, the Russian invasion has brought it to a standstill. And that's a problem, because without it, tens of millions of people from the Atlantic to the Red Sea and beyond could face hunger, real severe hunger. And with that could follow starvation, death and mass exodus. This is a story about difficult decisions and what the West might risk in order to get the port open again. It's a story about the city at the gateway to the world. I'm handing over to my colleagues Nina Curiata and James Harding, who reported this episode. Police in Austria say the 71 migrants found dead in an abandoned lorry last week appear to have died of suffocation almost immediately. This disturbing image shows how bad it has become. The body of one small boy cradled in a Turkish police officer. What do you want to be? I want to be a doctor. A doctor? You want to be a doctor? Yeah. So this is not where you should be living in this train station? No. No one deserves that life. No. No. These are the sounds the stories of a mass migration, one we all remember. 2015, the largest number of people seeking shelter in Europe since the Second World War. People came from Syria and Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, the Sahel, the Middle East, escaping the aftermath of the Arab Spring, fleeing their homes in hope of better lives, out of fear of war, violence and hunger. The uprisings, you may remember, began mostly in marketplaces, They started with food shortages and surging prices following bad weather and terrible harvests. 2010 was Australia's wettest year in a decade and the third wettest on record. A drought this severe has not been seen in decades in the region and has left people struggling. The heat wave has ravaged farmland and destroyed crops over an area the size of Portugal, leaving farming communities... Today, there is another, much bigger food crisis on the horizon one that threatens famine for millions, exodus for millions more. As I've said, it would make the Syrian refugee crisis look like a Sunday afternoon picnic or walk in the park. And and I don't mean that rhetorically. I mean, quite frankly, we're talking about millions and millions of people. In this week's Slow Newscast, 
we're looking at a disaster mapped out before us. And she said, Mr. Beasley, you trying to scare the European people? And I said, hell yeah, I'm trying to scare you. I need to wake you up to the reality you're facing. And we were asking if anyone will stop it. This is the story in slow, real time of a long shot campaign to reopen the port that feeds the world. Or if in the next six weeks that campaign fails, then the starvation, riots, and mass migrations to come. Most weeks in Tortoise, we tell the story of a person across time. This week, it's about a place in time. A place where Russia's invasion of Ukraine spills into all of our lives. From Tortoise, this is Odessa. In terms of deaths, are we talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions? Millions. I'm James Harding, I'm the editor of Tortoise, and I'm reporting this story with Nina Kuriata, who grew up in Odessa, who fled the war in Ukraine, then escaped to Poland, and is now the newest recruit to the Tortoise newsroom in London. And together, we're trying to understand what it would take now to secure the port of Odessa for the world. Today, the port of Odessa is closed. Vladimir Putin's navy blocks the passage of ships in and out. Sea mines and sunken warships obstruct the Russian amphibious invasion. The grain silos are full. The tankers are parked up alongside the dogs. The cranes stand still, like paralyzed steel dinosaurs. But it's not normally like this. Imagine the Black Sea with its blue-green water in the Odessa Bay and its sandy or rocky beaches. It is summertime, the sun is shining brightly, and you can even see dolphins in the sea. 192 steps bring you from the sea up to the city, where the monument of Duc de Richelieu, the first Odessa governor, meets you surrounded by beautiful buildings. The city of Odessa stands all along the Odessa Bay, with its classic, baroque and modern architecture of the central part, mostly French and Italian. Its wide streets are full with the sunlight in the morning and in the evening, and in the afternoon, when the sun goes high and it is especially hot, the streets are in the shadow of acacias, the symbolic trees for Odessa. Every building is like a cake, pale, pink, blue, yellow, with a lot of cream on the top. You can see classic columns, baroque moldings, figures of atlases and caryatids, and this beauty surrounds you everywhere in the center of the city. Much of it survived the Second World War, when the people of Odessa fought the Germans for more than 70 days before the Nazis occupied it. Nowadays, Odessa is famous as a multicultural city with magnificent beaches, its port, businesses and fancy restaurants. Its people are well known for their love of jokes, even during the city's darkest moments. There is a humor festival called Humorina, which takes place every year on April Fool's Day. When I was a student in the mid-90s, My friends and I would spend our time near the sea whenever possible. We would feed the seagulls and swans, drink beer on the sand in the spring and the autumn, 
and swim in the summer. We'd often have barbecues and play guitars and sing songs. And I like to count the ships on the horizon. You can hear why I care about Odessa. But to understand why it matters to the rest of the world, you need to go out to the rest of Ukraine, into its fields. Before the Russian invasion, Ukraine supplied half the world's sunflower oil, 15% of its corn, and 12% of its wheat. And those numbers mess just how much poorer countries rely on Ukraine's food stocks. Food prices in Lebanon have risen more than 600% in the past two years as its economy has imploded. It now depends on Ukraine for 80% of its wheat imports. Russia and Ukraine together produce 82% of the wheat imported by Egypt and all the wheat imported by Somalia. I could go on. Really, I think that in a few months, people in uh, developing countries like Sri Lanka, Syria, Iran will start dying because of lack of food. They will suffer. This is Elena Neroba, who works for a grain brokerage firm in Ukraine. It will be hunger, really hunger, because cost of wheat is uh, one of the records in history. It's almost top levels. And people in uh, developing countries, poor, but uh, bread is the bottom of daily diet. They consume twice more wheat or bread products than, for example, people in the European Union. It's a perverse situation to be in. Ukraine's grain silos are full, while the rest of the world grows hungrier. What's more, 98% of grain exports from Ukraine are shipped via the Black Sea. The vast majority go through Odessa. When Ukraine got its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, the port of Odessa became a huge hub for shipping grain all around the world. I used to pass this port twice a day on my way to and from university. I saw freight trains arriving at the port, the cranes loading the containers into ships. I heard the sounds of construction when the Grand Hotel of Odessa was built on the edge of the port. These days, some of the biggest shipping companies operate there. The likes of Yang Ming from Taiwan, firms from Germany, Dubai, Turkey. It's truly a port to the world. It's on China's new Silk Road through Georgia, Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. And it's on the Bosphorus Express shipping route, where you can travel over sea and ocean to South Korea, through Greece, Egypt, Saudi Arabia and Malaysia. That, of course, was before the war. When Russia invaded Ukraine and its forces drew closer to Odessa, the country's third biggest city, Ukrainian residents, prepared for battle. They set up anti-tank hedgehogs and filled bags with the sand from the beach to form barriers in the city. And what you've got behind me here is basically a yacht club. This is Odessa, this is a peak holiday destination for Russians, frankly, as well as Ukraine in the past. Now it's a barricade. Russian forces never did arrive in Odessa, but it hasn't stopped war coming to my city. (laughs) 
This is the aftermath of the bombing, the first time a civilian structure in the city has been hit. Begin this morning, though, with the war in Ukraine, where the major port city of Odessa has come under a new Russian attack. Authorities say one person was killed and five were injured when missiles struck a shopping center and a warehouse. Ukraine has had some success in weakening the Russian Navy. You might remember the story of the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the Russian vessel uh, Mokva. Uh, we are hearing that it has now sunk. But Odessa is still under a blockade. Russia has 20 warships and submarines in the Black Sea. There is nothing getting out. This is when David Beasley appears on the scene. It's the 25th of April, and he's headed to the Black Sea to orchestrate an outrage. Literally just crossed the border from Moldova to Ukraine, and we're heading to Odessa. Why? Because the ports in the Odessa region are absolutely critical to food security around the world. As you can tell from his accent, he's not from Odessa. He's from South Carolina in the U.S., and if his name sounds familiar, it's because he was a precociously young member of the South Carolina House of Representatives, then governor of the state, in the late 1990s. He was best known, perhaps, for taking on the controversy of the Confederate flag that used to fly on the top of the South Carolina State House until he pressed for its removal. He's a Republican, and as you'll hear, he's press savvy and plugged into Washington. In 2017, he was appointed executive director of the World Food Programme, and three years later, he picked up the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the WFP. But as he'll tell you, even before the war in Ukraine, the picture of food shortages, malnutrition and starvation had been getting worse and worse and worse. Before the Ukrainian war, we were already facing unprecedented humanitarian crisis. I'd been warning the world leaders that 2022 was going to be the worst humanitarian crisis year since World War II. And when you let me give a little backdrop. When I took over the World Food Program five years ago, there were 80 million people marching towards starvation. Uh, and my goal was to put the World Food Program out of business. That's kind of what I was wanting to do. You know, we were no longer needed. Well, <laughs> we went from 80 million to 135 million right before COVID. And so you would question, well, why did it go up? And the simple answer was man-made conflict. And the second uh, impact was climate shocks around the world. And so that was 135 million marching towards starvation. COVID comes along, bam, economic ripple effect around the world, devastating the poorest of the poor countries. And so that number spiked from 135 to 276 million people marching towards starvation who don't know where their next meal is coming from. And Ukraine has made things worse still. Global export prices for corn and wheat went up by 20% plus in the month after the war broke out. And the blockade of Odessa is now strangling future food supplies. How does that food from the farmers in the field in Ukraine get to the rest of the world? It's by ships and a lot of ships. In fact, on average, 3,000 train carloads per day go to, for example, the Odessa ports to be able to ship uh, 50, 60 million metric tons of wheat, corn, maize, sunflower oil, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so if, if these ports are shut down, and they are, that means... 400 million people won't get the food that the world depends on. Ukraine is also, basically, a farming economy. If the Black Sea ports stay closed, Ukraine will eventually collapse. 
and it won't stop there. Lebanon's in serious trouble. Jordan could become uh, very vulnerable. Syria, the crisis and food deterioration there is continuing. Yemen, of course, uh, the Sahel, and I, I say the Sahel, uh, that is what you were saying, Mali, Burkina Faso, Chad, Niger. Then you get into Cameroon, CAR, DRC, a little bit further south. Then you get Ethiopia, Sudan, South Sudan. Somalia is having a massive drought right now. And then the Somali region of Ethiopia. Uh, so you've got from the Atlantic to the Red Sea. Then you get over to, for example, Central America. The number of people talking about migrating to the United States border is five times what it was before uh, a, a year ago. And so now let them go over to Afghanistan and get into uh, you know Asia, et cetera. So it's like a ring of fire around the entire world right now. The first time I met David Beasley, it was 48 hours after that trip to Odessa. And you know when you're told two things on the same day and they are coincidental, but somehow it feels no accident. Well, the same day he was telling me about the five-fold increase in migrants through Central America into the US, someone else mentioned that the UK Home Office's internal forecast for asylum seekers crossing the channel this year was 115,000 people. It was 27,000 in 2021. Nearly, yes, you guessed it, a five-fold increase. People will starve, they will die, or, as we're seeing, they will flee. And this was the story that Beasley had gone to Odessa to tell. I've always felt like you, you go in, you do what you got to do, and if you're if it's your time, it's your time. That doesn't mean you get stupid and reckless, but I know you can't achieve by phone what you can achieve by being on the ground. That's why I went. Some I had, as you can imagine, a lot of my senator friends were saying, "Don't you go? Don't you go?" And I'm like, "No, I've got to go." What he saw when he got there was what he feared: nothing. It's like a ghost town. All, you got a hundred ships just sitting there and all the seafarers sitting there. Stillness punctuated by the noise of war. While I was there, we were being, uh, missiles were flying overhead and you know, we were running down to bomb shelters. I don't want to say by the minute, but it was quite often. Beasley himself had gone to make a noise, one that he's trying to get heard back home. We go now to David Beasley, the executive director of the UN's World Food Program. He joins us from Lviv, Ukraine. And the message is landing, and not just in America. In the UK, the governor of the Bank of England, generally understated and cryptic, has sounded the alarm. And then, I'm afraid the one that I am going to sound, I guess, rather apocalyptic about is food. You know, as you know, Ukraine is a major supplier of, uh, of, of uh, wheat, major supplier of um, oil, of uh, uh, cooking oils. And that is a major, major worry. And it's not just, I have to tell you, a major worry for this country. It is a major worry for the developing world as well. All over the globe, a pattern is beginning to repeat itself. Food nationalism. Indonesia announced plans to ban palm oil exports on Friday. A shock move by the world's largest palm oil producer. Not a harvest for the world, but first and foremost, for themselves. India, which is the world's second largest producer of wheat, was hoping to fill the supply gap left behind by decreased exports from Ukraine. But now a scorching heatwave is destroying grains across the country. The world's poorest people are already in desperate need. The World Food Programme has cut rations to Yemen in half. The dire emergency in East Africa, the drought there exacerbating the hunger crisis, as many as 20 million... The Horn of Africa is experiencing its worst drought in four decades. And David Beasley has not been the only one who, in his phrase, is jumping up and down. 
On the 9th of May, the European Council president made a surprise trip to the city. Today, I came to celebrate, to celebrate Europe Day in a melting pot of European culture and history, Odessa, the city where Pushkin said that you can feel Europe. Charles Michel called for a global response to the Odessa blockade. And President Zelensky has not minced his words. Tonight, Ukraine's President Zelensky warning the Russian blockade of ports like Odessa is threatening the world's food supply. You'll forgive a note of cynicism here. The West did not answer Zelensky's call for a no-fly zone. For decades, the world's been warned of the climate emergency, but emissions keep on rising in more or less a straight line. The COVID crisis, a global pandemic, was met with very little international coordination, and that much too late. In fact, last summer, I tried to piece together how the UK government could have promised to vaccinate the world at the G7 summit in Carbis Bay, and then fallen so far short. So it takes an optimistic nature, to say the least, not to be jaded about global leadership, not to think that once again, even with the prospect of famines, civil wars and mass migration spread out before us, there'll be more words and no action. But both Nina and my colleague Xavier Greenwood, who's producing this podcast, tell me not to be quite so defeatist quite so fast. We'd heard that the WFP was trying to rattle government cages in Ankara and Paris, that they were trying to use the big food multinationals to lobby their governments, and in fact, that the Biden administration was actively exploring a coalition effort to secure the seaways in and out of Odessa. And Zav tried to find out more. So I talked to an official in Brussels he said the EU is working with Turkey and the UN and they're going to try to set up a sea corridor in the Black Sea and that would be for civilian vessels to ship grain to Istanbul. Now, the EU official I spoke to said they wouldn't necessarily wait for Russia's agreement to do this. When I asked if they thought this was risky, the official said it was the same risk military supplies going into Ukraine face. He said it would be risky for Russia too to attack a ship filled with grain and destined for African countries in need. And so I got on the phone to Seth Jones. He works at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He was an advisor for U.S. Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan. I asked him how such a channel could work. Well, it is possible that ships could move through the Bosporus, hug the western coastline of the Black Sea, up along the border with Bulgaria, Romania, and then into Ukraine, unload their goods at Odessa or or uh, or load them onto ships and then turn around, hug the coastline, and then come back, they're still going to be in danger of Russian ships at some point. So particularly in Ukraine, I, I think if they hug the coastline closely within Romanian or Bulgarian waters, there may be some hesitation for the Russians to shoot down a civilian ship carrying grain or other material, you know, it is possible to uh, test the blockade and essentially bait the Russians into either having to let some of these ships go or sink civilian ships. If we're trying to piece together this campaign to reopen Odessa as it happens or it doesn't, there are two ways out of this, Russia or the West. Might Russia use the reopening of Odessa as leverage in a deal with Ukraine? Or will the West marshal merchant and maybe even military navies to establish an international convoy? 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What I think history tells us is how difficult it will be to persuade Russia to stage a quiet retreat from Odessa, even if they don't look like capturing the city. If you look back over 250 years, this is the ninth Russian, you know, uh, movement into the Black Sea to control this region so that the Russian Empire can expand. So this is this is not news for the past 350 years that Russia is desperate to kind of keep control of this and it's crucial for its imperial advances. And yeah, I, I... this is Scott Reynolds Nelson. He's a history professor at the University of Georgia and the author of Oceans of Grain. As you might expect, he knows a lot about grain. And at the center of that history is Ukraine. What's fantastic about it is it's the Goldilocks zone, right? It's near, a de- it's, it's got deep water nearby, which is important for delivering it. It's very, che- grain is relatively cheap per pound. And so you want to be able to send it by water as much as possible. You've got flat plains, you've got fresh water, and you've got deep black soil. You can see that black soil from a distance, or you can see it from an airplane, actually. It's so black. And so it's, you know, it, it, we, we can see grain, grain being grown there. Uh, archaeologists can from 2300 BC. It's where Jason and the Argonauts, uh, some people say that the golden fleece they were actually searching for is uh, a kind of metaphor for the grain that's in this region. It feeds the Greek city-states. For centuries, grain has shaped Russia's imperial ambitions, and Odessa has long been at the center. It's obvious that Vladimir Putin understands the importance of food. His two-year-old brother, Viktor Putin, died of diphtheria and starvation during Nazi Germany's siege of Leningrad in the Second World War. Putin knows, too, the economic weapon that food can be. Ukraine is a huge exporter of wheat, but Russia is the biggest. Basically, the blockading of grain is in Russia's interest. It's more than doubled the value of grain at this point, uh, which is propping up the ruble. One of the things that's propping up the ruble is not just gas. And he, he can certainly continue this for quite a while. 
That's one of the reasons why Odessa, in Vladimir Putin's eyes, is the key to Russian greatness. When Catherine the Great named her grandson Constantine, it was to to capture Istanbul and turn it into Tsarograd, the city of czars. And I think Putin has a you know very a similar kind of sense that Russia's destiny ultimately depends on the Black Sea, and if he loses it, the Russia will never be a great power again. None of that suggests that Putin or Russia are going to readily open the ports at Odessa for humanitarian reasons. And the clock is ticking. As Nina and I sit here recording this, it's late May. Within six weeks, Ukraine's farmers will start bringing in the next harvest. The silos are already full. And where will the food go, other than be left to rot? Well, I think the starting point is to realize that there are there are going to be two phases to the food supply crisis that's uh, that's created by blockages in, in Odessa. Right now, there's quite a lot of supply of grain and foodstuffs and fertilizer, both in Russia and Ukraine, from last year's crop. The challenge is getting it to market, which can be done by train to the west, but vastly more efficiently uh, by ship out of the port of Odessa. This is Bruce Jones. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he runs a project on international order and strategy. And he served with UN operations in Kosovo and the Middle East. Next year, we're also going to be dealing with serious interruptions to Ukrainian supply. So that's a down-the-road challenge. This is going to be a, a supply problem. Right now, it's primarily a transportation problem. The second point is to be realistic that for all of the challenges that the Russian Navy has had in the Black Sea, either they're going to have to consent to some kind of operation to, to improve the flow of goods out of the Odessa port, or NATO would have to fight its way in. So those are two options, consent or force, are either likely. I mean, I would almost rule out the intervention scenario. You know, if we were going to intervene, we would have done it over the no-fly zone. We would have taken out the Russian Air Force. We would have stopped this ages ago, which would not be that difficult to do if we're willing to risk the, the escalation. We haven't been, I think, correctly. Well, that leaves the consent option. I was part of putting in place the humanitarian uh, assessment mission that happened while Russia and NATO were at active war over the situation in Kosovo. While NATO was bombing Kosovo, we got NATO to stop the bombing long enough to do a humanitarian assessment. It's perfectly possible for major military powers to hold back on operations long enough for a humanitarian operation to be underway. Putin may have some diplomatic reasons to let grain through the ports. It's just that you wouldn't bank on it. Russia might see an interest in not hurting its reputation in, in some of those parts of the world that are dependent on the flow of, of uh, cereals and, and fertilizer and other food stocks from, from Ukraine. Uh, so there might be that Russia calculates its interest differently in terms of the international dimensions of this than the domestic Ukrainian dimensions. I, I don't know. It seems to me that Putin's in a pretty bloody-minded mood and showing very little signs of a willingness to compromise or accede to pressures or demands or etc. I heard something similar from Olga Trofimtseva, who is ambassador-at-large in Ukraine's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. She agreed that there was little hope of Putin making concessions. In her eyes, only a Ukrainian victory would reopen the Odessa port. You cannot trust Russia at all, not in a peacetime uh, and in wartime even even less. So you, you can trust with, uh, with state, unfortunately. 
I don't see there any potential uh, for negotiation, unfortunately, any room for negotiation with Russia. Only defeat and uh, only the uh, pushing back uh, Russians to their uh, borders uh, and out of the Ukrainian territory would help us to, to be back uh, on a world market and a full sc- in a full scale uh, as we were uh, before 24th of uh, February. There are other possibilities. This is Seth Jones again from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. He thinks China might be the country to save the day. With a potential for Finland and Sweden entering NATO, we see an iron curtain from Finland through the Baltics along the eastern flank of NATO. And so this is going to force the Russians to continue to look to China as their major relief from the sanctions, the political isolation and the expanding military alliance to their west. So if the Chinese start to push back and ask for a relief of the blockade, that I think would at least, the the Russians and Vladimir Putin in particular would listen to it. But China aside, there don't seem to be any safe options for the west. Whatever it does in the Black Sea, it risks escalating the war. Well, I think there are a range of factors that are increasing the possibility of an expansion of the war. Just to list a few of them, the uh, expansion of NATO to include Finland and Sweden is a serious potential factor that could escalate tensions. The continuing movement of weapons into Ukraine that have contributed to the deaths of Russian soldiers, including Russian general officers, that is, and the use of NATO territory such as Poland, for the movement of weapons, including howitzers now, that have as, about as much reach as uh, Russian artillery. So it does, it's very useful to Ukrainian forces along those front lines in the Ukrainian East. That's a potential avenue for escalation of the war. And then with Odessa and the, uh, the potential for growing starvation, efforts to break the blockade. So if NATO countries put significant pressure on Turkey, also a NATO country, to allow ships in. That risks escalation. It's little wonder then that there are efforts to avoid the Black Sea altogether. The European Commission is trying to establish what it calls solidarity lanes. They're intended to make it easier for Ukraine to export grain over land and across borders into EU ports. But that is not as easy as it sounds. Ukrainian wagons aren't compatible with most of the EU rail network, i.e. the gauges of the railways are different, so you have to lift the cargo trucks off one set of rolling stock and onto another. And the average waiting time for border crossings out of Ukraine at the moment is 16 days. And anyway, you also have a problem of capacity, a very big problem. It will take an unholy number of wagons, barges, lorries, vessels and loading equipment to export the 20 million tonnes of grain that the EU estimates has to leave Ukraine in the next three months. Bruce Jones from Brookings told us that a single container ship fully stacked can carry the same quantity of goods as between 50 and 70 trains. The European Commission has called the task, and prepare yourself, it's a big word, gigantesque. So if all that doesn't work, it feels like we might end up back where we started, at that proposed channel in the Black Sea, down from Odessa to Istanbul. And that is, any way you look at it, a dangerous prospect. Western civilian ships with thousands of tons of grain on board, sailing a gauntlet of sea mines and Russian missiles. When will you know if you've won or lost? 
well, when the port's open, and I don't think this is a six-month campaign, it's the next next 60 days. And then when you start seeing people dying, that's when you know you've really lost. The chances of the port being reopened are, let's face it, small. The consequences, enormous. And in the days since I first spoke to David Beasley, I've started to see the world and listen to the news differently. Because if Odessa remains closed, then the prospects for tens of millions of people of even one meal a day will hinge on the weather. Karachi, which is the biggest and the most densely populated city in Pakistan, is facing an intense heat wave. Over the next seven days, we have the potential to break or shatter over seven uh, or 200 record high temperatures. India's northwest has suffered under a heat wave, but this one is unusually early. And I realize now that listening out for those weather reports from all around the world, it all comes back to Odessa. I spent a good part of my childhood in the small town of Lubashivka, two hours by car from Odessa. On the road between the two, all you can see are fields on both sides, yellow and green. Fields of sunflowers, corn, rye and wheat. In 1984, I started school. Soviet propaganda was everywhere. One of the first things we had to learn, even before we knew how to read, was to know the name of our motherland. There was only one correct answer. Not the USSR, not the Soviet Union, but the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. I remember I asked my grandmother if she knew the correct name of our motherland. She had survived Stalin-induced famine when she was three and grew up under the shadow of World War II. She didn't give me the right answer. So I was very pleased to tell her the correct answer for our motherland is the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. She looked into my eyes very seriously and said, Remember, your motherland is Lubashivka. That weekend, she took me by my hand, we went to a wheat field, and she said, Look, this is your motherland. This episode was reported by me, Nina Kuryata, James Harding, and Xavier Greenwood. It was produced by Xavier Greenwood, the sound designer was Tom Birchill, and the editor was Jasper Corbett. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. And I know that I say this every week, but if you like what we do and you want to support us, then why not leave us a review or a five-star rating on the podcast platform of your choice? Or better yet, you can get involved in our journalism and join us as a member of our newsroom. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.